Well, good morning, everybody. It's so great to see you. Hey, can we take just a second and welcome everybody joining us online this morning? Come on, let them know that you're excited they're joining us. Thank you so much uh, for being a part today. Uh, you're just as much a part of our church as everybody sitting in the room, and we just want to welcome you uh, to our, our gathering today. Well, before we jump into uh, the message, I do uh, want to tell you guys about something that's happened uh, this past week and then a, a couple weeks ago as well, and that is that our kids' ministry just uh, finished up uh, kids camp. Now, they did a kids camp for pre-K kids, which my kids were a part of because my kids are three and four. And then they also did another camp uh, this past week with elementary age. I think it was uh, kindergarten through fifth. And in this week, they had a little over 70 kids come through. But not only that, they saw four kids uh, make a decision for Christ and, and to just accept Jesus into their heart. And then we had another, I think it was three or four kids uh, that also said, man, I feel like God's calling me to ministry. Now, I say that, and you may sit there and think, they're eight, whatever. L let me tell you something. Um, my first experience feeling called into ministry, I was seven years old at a kid's camp. So it's, it's not, sometimes we hear kids say things and we go, ah, they're kids. But there's something significant that happens in, in these camps. And so can we celebrate what God's done in the last couple weeks with our kids' ministry? Thank you, Pastor Kim. Thank you, everybody that came and helped out. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And every time we have the opportunity to celebrate what God's doing in people's lives, uh, we should take that opportunity. Amen? Awesome. Well, hey, we are in our second week of our series called The Stories That Shape Us, where we've been talking about parables. And if you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, we're going to read from there today. Um, and we've been talking, if you missed last week, we started talking about how stories impact us, that stories uh, change our perspective and they touch every part of our emotions. And Jesus chose to primarily teach in story for a reason. He used these things called parables to help us understand deep theological truths, things he wanted us to know about God uh, and put them in a way that we can understand them. And so today we're going to read another parable that Jesus told. Matthew chapter 18 verse 21 is where we're going to read. It says this, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, in other words, because of this conversation we're having, let me tell you a story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that they had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, his master, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he, seizing him, he choked him saying, pay me what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until his debt should be paid. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, 
I forgave all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not have you had the same mercy of your fellow servant I have shown you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailer until the debt should be paid. So also will your heavenly father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word today. This story that you give us to shape us, to challenge us, to convict us. And Lord, as we, as we look at this story, uh, we're asking it to do that. Father, reveal to us what you desire for us to see out of this and allow it to change us, to be just a little bit more like you. We ask these things in your name, Jesus Christ, the strong son of God. Amen and amen. You know, I, I love getting to know people and getting to see how entertainment uh, shapes their lives. And one of the things that I do when I'm getting to know people is I love to ask questions. And one of the questions that is my favorite to ask is, what are your top five favorite movies? Right, like I love that question. And I know that what you're thinking, it's not my, you know, it's, it's, I'm not like the moral police, okay? I know sometimes you might think that because of what I did. That is not the gig. It's not to find out whether or not you watch Game of Thrones. That's not what's happening, okay? It, I love to just hear like how, how you choose to engage in entertainment. It's a fun question for me. And uh, Pastor Ashley uh, said earlier that she got married last Sunday. And uh, I, I, my wife, and a couple other people jumped in my car. We carpooled to the wedding. And two of the people that were in the car, I don't get to spend a ton of time with. And so I thought, as we're driving, I'm going to ask some questions. One of them being, what's your top five favorite movies? And it's always interesting to see how people answer this question because it really does tell you a lot about a person. It, it really does tell you a lot about who they are. It tells you uh, what their expectation is when they engage in story or when they engage in entertainment. And I found very, a, a high level of diversity in my car. One of the persons, uh, that one of the people that were in my car, um, she said, I, oh, I like this movie and this movie and this movie. And she started listing them. And one of them was a movie that I'd never heard of. It was uh, kind of an indie film that wasn't um, super well-known, but it was a story. You know those type of movies where you jump into like the middle of the story? There's not really a definitive beginning or end, but you're just kind of jumping along for a season inside of the story. That was one of them. Uh, another one was Braveheart, which I was like, okay, all right. I can, uh, you know, you got some diversity there. Sweet little story killing people, whatever, you know, so, so, you know, I'm listening, and she also threw in a comedy, and I was like, okay, okay, she's, she is well-rounded, right, like, she is well-rounded in her story uh, entertainment vibe, okay, but then there's this other person in my car who had the exact opposite um, dynamic of their movie choice. This person, um, <laughs> this person uh, picked three out of five movies that were all extremely, what I would call lighthearted comedies by the same lead actor. Like, I'm, like in my mind, I'm thinking, do, okay, like that's, that's an interesting, that's an interesting way to go about it. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not picking on him. It was just a very polar opposite uh, approach to movie entertainment. I was, I was very surprised by that. So on the one hand, you have somebody who is watching to experience and watching to have a diversity of, of uh, emotions. The other person's saying, man, I just, I just want to chill when I'm watching movies. I don't want to think about stuff. I want to laugh a little bit, and that's kind of where I want to go. I thought it was very interesting. But I think that for most of us, 
Whether, whether you say, man, TV or movies for me, engaging in story is really for me to just shut my brain off or it's for me to really engage. Regardless of where you fit, I think that most of us can say that we all enjoy a good plot twist. We all enjoy a good plot twist. And there are plot twists in every type of movie. There are plot twists in comedy. There are plot twists in serious movies. And a plot twist is simply that... Thanks a lot, Siri. It's even on airplane mode. I don't even know what's happening right now. Um, I have the little airplane, see? Uh, so anyway, I promise, I turn my stuff off when I come to church because I ask you to do the same thing. So in case you needed a reminder, I'm just kidding. Um, plot twists, plot twists are in all types of movies, right? They're, they're in all types of movies. And it's simply that you're going along, if, you, if you're not familiar with that terminology, you're going along in the story and all of a sudden, either new evidence is introduced or somebody does something completely out of character that changes the trajectory of the story. That is a plot twist. And when I think about plot twists, one of the movies that comes to mind is the movie The Prestige. Um, it's a movie from 2006, by the way, spoiler alert, uh, if you haven't seen it, it's been like 15 years, so that's on you. Um, you're watching this movie. The guy is a professional magician um, in uh, probably 100, 150 years ago. He's, he's doing his thing, and nobody can figure out how, he, how he's able to do these magic tricks where he goes from one place to the other so quickly. It's physically impossible, and it is physically impossible because the only re reason he was able to do it in the movie is because he had a twin brother, and that is the plot twist. You watch it, and like two-thirds of the way into the movie, you see that he has a twin brother that's dressed the exact same way so everybody thinks it's him, but it's not really him. I love plot twists. And when Jesus talks in story, most of the time there is a plot twist inside of the story. The, the problem is that we don't always necessarily understand the, the context of the story that Jesus is giving. We don't always necessarily understand that. Now, I wanna say this, that I think pastors are guilty of this sometimes, that we, we use this word context a lot, but we don't really help uh, give definitive understanding to what we mean when we say context. In short, we don't give you context for what we mean by the word context. And so when we read the Bible and we see stories or we see people telling stories, any kind of communication, it's important that we understand that when we talk about context, what we're saying is that context is simply understanding the, the statement or the story in its original place. So like in its original time, what are things that everybody would know in that period? What are things that everybody, would, you know, like pop culture things, things that everybody would just commonly understand in that day and age? And when we understand that, it actually brings a new understanding to scripture. Last week, we told the story of the, the prodigal son or the, the two lost sons. And inside of that story, there's a plot twist. We wouldn't read it like that in 21st century, but there was a plot twist. That story had been told in a different way for years prior to Jesus. Yet he tells a story to help us better understand grace and mercy and the redemption inside of our relationship with God that he wanted us to see. So he gives a plot twist to a story that everybody was familiar with. And most of Jesus' parables in some way connect to something that is very familiar for them. But in this story that we read today, I think it's actually the easiest story to see a plot twist in if you are looking for it. And so inside of this story, we have something that we would say is a, um, 
a role plot twist, that somebody's role shifts in the middle of the story. So we have four main characters in the story that we're reading. We have the king, who is the, the one who everybody owes money to. Um, and we, we see his role. Obviously, he is um, representative of God in our life, that, that we owe him in, in, inside of this. And even the debt in the story is illustrative of um, the, the fact that we have brokenness and sin and that we owe God for, for the repentance of those sins. So we owe God for the sacrifice so that we can stand before him in, in righteousness. And so we see this relationship between the king and the second person in the story, which is the first servant. And then we have a, another servant who is the, the third person in the story. When I think about this story, I like to think about it in three major scenes. The first scene is the king and the first servant who owes him a ridiculous amount of money. A, an amount of money that when we read the story, when we read the story, um, it would be to the point of saying that if this man took every penny that he ever earns, doesn't live off of it, completely goes to pay his debt off, he would still, even in a lifetime, not pay that money back. It's at that level, which is interesting because the man looks at the king and says, please have patience with me, which is actually a lie. It's actually a complete lie to say that he, to have patience with me so that I can pay it back because he knows and the king knows in this moment he'll never pay it back. I've read uh, several commentators that actually said that it would be the equivalent to an individual owing the national debt inside of their own country. So like it would be like saying, not, not in the, the physical dollars and cents way, as in uh, the equivalent to a trillion dollars now, right? Like, or to several trillion dollars now. It would be like saying it's so much money, it might as well be the national debt because you'll never individually pay it back. That's what's being communicated in the story. So that's scene one. We see, we see grace in that moment because when he could have easily thrown him and his family in jail, he chooses to show forgiveness of the debt, which is representative of God's forgiveness of our sin. The second scene, we see a role shift. We see this, this servant who in the first scene owed somebody else money being owed money. But he's owed a significantly smaller amount of money. He's owed the equivalent to maybe a week or two worth of wages. It was, it was not an amount of money that would have been difficult to pay back over time. Yet when he is given the opportunity to be in the same role that the king was in scene one, in this moment, he chooses to show no grace he chooses to show no mercy, and not only that, he goes after him. The Bible says that he chokes him, pressuring him to pay back what he owed. And then we have scene three where we see a third servant pop up who sees what happens, he witnesses it, he tells the king, the king is upset because he saw, uh, he saw how gracious he was to this guy, and yet he chose not to be gracious. And he goes back to him and he says, you could have shown the same mercy that I showed you, but you didn't. And because I'm rescinding what I have offered you, and I'm now throwing you back in jail. And Jesus tells this story to help shape our understanding of this ginormous word we call forgiveness. We call forgiveness. And the, the question that we have to ask is, why is Jesus telling this parable? When we ask that question, though, we actually have to ask one before it. And that is not why, but when. When is Jesus telling this story? 
When you look at Matthew chapter 18, you can tell that there's several conversations going on about forgiveness. I mean, remember how the story started. Peter says, how many times should I forgive somebody when they've sinned against me? Seven times, eight times, 10 times, how many? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times. In other words, more than you'll probably ever have to forgive an individual person. Not only that, we see earlier in the passage that Jesus gives uh, some specific instruction in how to deal with uh, conflict or um, wounds in our life. Like when somebody has wounded us, when somebody's hurt us, how do we deal with that? Well, he tells them, uh, some of you who've been in church a long time have probably been told when you have an issue similar that you're to go to that person. Uh, I, I grew up with people who would say, you have to Matthew 18 that moment. And you have to go to that person it, Tell them that they've offended you and try to deal with it. And if that doesn't work, then you take somebody else with you to go and deal with it. He's giving us a, a kind of a system to understand how to deal with forgiveness in our life and how to, how to deal with, um, with issues in our life regarding people. And all of that to say that Matthew 18, uh, most scholars would agree, had to have happened in one 10-day period. In one specific 10-day period in the Jewish calendar, and that was the 10-day period in between Yom Kippur, or sorry, in between Jewish New Year and Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Now, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was a very special day in the life of uh, the Jewish community. It is the day that you go and you repent to God for everything that you have done the year prior. That is the goal of that day. You go, you, you uh, ask for forgiveness, and you have that moment all day. This is even something in the life of Jewish people in today's culture, that if they go, uh, or if they keep up with their Jewish tradition, this is one of the biggest days. This is the holiday you don't miss, right? And so they would go and choose to ask forgiveness of sin. It's not, um, for those of you who grew up in a, a Catholic environment, it, it's not unlike that. So if you grew up with a, with a Catholic history, it's different, but it's similar to the idea of going to confession, that there is a set day, there's a set time that you go and ask for the forgiveness of your sin. So it, it, most, most Catholic uh, history would, would parallel those two things inside of their own tradition. And so when you look at that, you see the Day of Atonement and you see the Jewish New Year on the calendar, or I, I said those backwards, it's the Jewish New Year, then the Day of Atonement. But in the middle of those two things, there is a very intentional 10 days there. And it is probably for Jewish people the busiest 10 days of their life. Because from Jewish New Year to the Day of Atonement, they have a responsibility. That is to go to everyone who has hurt them and tell them that they have forgiven them in that, from that last year. And also to go for anyone that they may have offended or sinned against and to ask for forgiveness. Their job is to settle up everything on earth before they go and ask forgiveness from God. That that is, that is the role. It is, it is no mistake that we see several different questions regarding forgiveness in the same time in Jesus' ministry because this was something taken very seriously in the culture that they lived in. Forgiveness mattered. And Jesus begins to help people understand what forgiveness really means through this story that he gives. Now, there's a couple of things that I think are central themes in the story. Number one, we kind of already touched on this, that 
that the debt is indicative of our sin. It's illustrative of, of who we are, the brokenness in our life, the, the issues that we, that we have and that we've asked God to forgive. That, that, that same forgiveness that we see in the story is a picture of God forgiving us of our sin. But then we see this, this second part, and this is the plot twist moment. I would call it the forgiveness paradox. And that is of the, the main servant. And we all share in this same paradox and plot twist in our life. And that is that as much um, as we are people who have been forgiven, God has called us and required of us to be people who forgive. That we are called to be those people. That for everything that I have been forgiven, I am required to also forgive other people. And not only that, there is a a very important picture that we see in the amount of debt that is owed and owed to, or owed by and owed to the servant. The first one is an, an amount of debt that you will never pay back in your life. That only by the grace of God has it been covered. You know, like some of our student loans. And so, uh, just throw that out there. Uh, you know, uh, th- there is that reality. But then for others, we are required, or for us, we are required to also forgive the debt that is owed to us. The forgiveness that is required of us. And we struggle with this. I think that we struggle with this. We struggle with it for a few reasons. But I think for most of us, we struggle with living a life of forgiveness, which the scripture so clearly calls us to, because we feel validated in our hurt. We feel validated in our wounds. People hurt us, people wound us, people are disloyal, people betray our trust. And and if we're honest, we look at that moment and we say, you don't deserve to be in my good graces. You don't deserve to be forgiven because of what you did. But Jesus gives a very serious ultimatum in this passage that if we are not willing to forgive, we will not receive the forgiveness that is given us. And I think the question is why? Why is Jesus drawing such a hard line here? And I've asked this question several times in in my own life. God, why do you draw the line with forgiveness? And it's because of this, that I will never truly value what I am not willing to embrace in my own life. I'll never truly value forgiveness if I'm not willing to embrace forgiveness. Because it is in the embracing of forgiveness, it is in the embracing of forgiveness that I truly understand the cost of forgiving me. It's in that embracing in my own life that I begin to realize just how painful I have hurt the heart of God in my own sin. And it's important that we understand that God is not asking us to do something that he hasn't done. And and you may sit here and say, you know what? I am validated in my unwillingness to forgive. I am validated in that decision. And they do not deserve my forgiveness. And you know what? You are right. But you do not deserve the forgiveness that has been afforded you through the sacrifice, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You do not, you are not owed that any more than the forgiveness that you choose to or to not give people. 
And we are all called to be people who even though you may be val- or validated in your claim against someone, to be the person who chooses to live a life of forgiveness. And it's difficult, but as I choose to embrace forgiveness in my own life, I, I will actually find myself valuing and appreciating the forgiveness that I receive from God that much more. So the question is, how do I choose to live a life of forgiveness? How do I walk in forgiveness in my own life? I'm gonna give you three thoughts this morning in how to do that. The first is this, that I have to make forgiveness a discipline, not just an emotional response. I have to make it a discipline and not just an emotional response. Love and forgiveness are very similar, right? Love and forgiveness are very similar in that we feel love, and you might feel the desire to forgive, but, but if you are married for any length of time, you know that love is more of a discipline than it is an emotion. There have been a couple of days in my marriage where I have had to love my wife out of a discipline, not out of an emotion. And there have been a couple of days for my wife where she has gotten the chance to love me out of an emotion and not out of a discipline, right? Like, she's married to me. She's stuck with me forever. And so, y'all should all pity her at some level. And so, it just is what it is, right? No, no, there's a reality that both of us in our relationship, um, there have been days that are good. There have been days not so good, right? There have been days that are not so good, but yet we still choose to love each other. We still choose to live out the discipline of love. And forgiveness is the same way, that there are days where you may choose or you may not want to forgive somebody because you're not feeling it. But when I see it as a, when I see it as a discipline and not as an emotion, it takes the decision of whether or not I do it off the table. Because even though I don't feel like it, the Lord requires it of me. Even though I don't feel like it, God is calling me to be that person because when I choose to forgive, I'm living a life that's just a little bit more like Jesus. And I'm called to make forgiveness a discipline and not just an emotional response. Second thing that I have to do is I have to be aware of my own paradox. I have to be aware of my own forgiveness paradox. What do I mean by that? I mean this, that in all of our lives, just like the first, this first servant. I am forgiven of many things, but I'm also called to forgive other people. And it is helpful when I choose to realize and choose to acknowledge the fact that I have been forgiven much more than I will ever be asked to forgive. It is, it is helpful. The problem is, I think for many of us, if we're honest, we will say it out of our mouth, but we do not believe it. We write off our own issues, we write off our own problems, we rationalize them and explain them away, and then we wanna do what the servant did after he had been forgiven, and that is hold people accountable with no mercy. But it is when I sit in that paradox that I sit in both of those roles, the one who has been forgiven much and the one who is being called to forgive a little. And I know that it doesn't feel like a little. I know that all of us, when we have pain, when we have people who've wounded us, when we've had people who've hurt us, it is, it feels like everything. 
But when I choose to believe what the word of God teaches me, that I am forgiven way more than I will ever ask to, be for, for, to forgive, when I choose to believe that, it changes the posture of my heart in, in context of forgiveness. This has been very real for me in the last uh, six months. This has been very real for me. I had a friend that was a lifelong friend, a friend that I've known since I was a kid, that um, I don't know of a better way other than to say uh, that he betrayed me and sinned against me. It was very painful. It was very painful. And it wasn't just like a moment. It was something that happened repeatedly over a season. It was very, it was very painful for me. This happened several years ago, se several years ago. And it, it hurt. It is, it is by far the deepest betrayal I've ever personally felt. And I knew when it happened, very shortly after it happened, I knew um, that this was either going to be something that I allowed to make, to make me bitter, or I was going to allow it to be something that eventually became my story of God's faithfulness in my life. And I did everything that I, I knew to do to, to deal with it. I went and saw a mental health counselor, processed it with him. By the way, um, I'm very pro mental health counseling. It's, it is a good thing. You, you may need it more than you realize. And I'm telling you as a person that I feel like as, as a fairly healthy person, I wouldn't be a healthy person if I didn't go and sit and talk to a counselor every once in a while. There are good things that come out of that. It's a, it is a, that, that occupation is a gift to the body of Christ. And I found, I found in my own life that going to a mental health counselor and having those conversations um, I worked through it a little bit. I worked through it a little bit in prayer. I worked through it a little bit in my own personal revelation of scripture. But if I'm honest, after about a year, I was just tired of thinking about it and I pressed it down and I pretended like I was more over it than I really was. And it wasn't until about five or six months ago that this guy's uh, face popped up on a, on a um, stream on my Facebook wall. Have you ever had that moment where you hadn't thought about somebody in months and, and you see them, maybe this person's wounded you and you see their face and you're immediately frustrated? That was that moment for me. You were immediately frustrated. You were immediately angry. It's not anything that the person said. It's not anything, it was just their face. And I realized in that moment, I had not, if I'm being real vulnerable with you, I had not done what I had said I had done or even chose to believe I had done. And I realized that, that there was a deeper layer of this that I needed to process that I needed to heal from. And the next day, uh, I, have a, I have a practice, a, a personal practice in my life where I pray the 23rd Psalm and the Lord's Prayer every day in the morning and in the evening. Um, I'm not suggesting it to you, it, but for me, um, it, it helps keep me grounded in my faith, and it also has made a, a significant impact in my life. And so I do those things. I pray the Lord's Prayer, and I pray the 23rd Psalm. And I remember as I was praying the, the Lord's Prayer that day, I got to the part where it says, forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sinned against us. And I, I just had that moment where I thought, I've not forgiven this guy as I thought I have. And I sat back, I said, Lord, I don't know 
that I can let this go any more than I have. I've done everything that I know to do. I've talked to people, I've, I've prayed about it, I've, I've read scripture that deals with forgiveness. I just don't know. In that moment, I just felt the Lord drop. It's a paradox. And that's where this, this term that I'm using this morning, the forgiveness paradox comes from, that, that personal time. And I begin to realize in that moment, the Lord began, not in a shameful way, but just in a, a check way in my own life to remind me of the things I had been forgiven of, to remind me of the things that, that I have received restoration for in my own life. And he reminded me, he helped me be aware of my own paradox. And in that, over the last several months, I have intentionally prayed for that person. I've intentionally walked through that in my own life. And there has been a freedom in that. And I I say that to say this, sometimes when we talk about forgiveness, we're very obsessed with the, the words, the verbiage that comes out of our mouth. But, but as many things, most things are with Jesus, it is not about what we profess with our mouth, but it is the posture of our heart. And forgiveness is not different than that. That it is about the posture of your heart. And, and you may have said the words, but still struggle with, with actually releasing what it means to forgive that person that's wounded you. And the truth is, is that the deeper the wound, the deeper the wound, the longer it will take to feel that healing. But living in forgiveness is is not about never letting any offense bother you, but it is about the posture of your heart to let it go and receive the healing that God desires for you in forgiveness. Because it is in forgiveness, it is embracing forgiveness that I more value forgiveness in my life. And even though I'll also more value what God has done for me, I'll also more value the extension of it in my own life because I'm willing to make that decision. You may be like me in here and you say, you know what, I've tried. I've talked to people, I've, I've prayed about it. I've, uh, maybe you've had a conversation with the person, whatever it is, and you say, I, I just can't let it go. I wanna encourage you, choose to be aware of your own paradox. And the last thing that I wanna say is this, that if we wanna live a life of forgiveness, it is important that we keep and remember the benefits of forgiveness in front of us. There is a benefit to forgiveness beyond the obvious one, right? Like we see it in scripture that when I choose to forgive, when I choose to forgive, I receive forgiveness. But there's something else that comes that to be honest, as important as it is for our eternity to receive forgiveness, I think that this part on this side of heaven is equally or more important. And that is the peace and the freedom that comes with forgiveness. It is the peace that comes with that. That there is, the, the scripture uses the phrase, peace that passes all understanding. And what that means is that there is a supernatural gift of peace that you could not ever access in your own mind. You could never access it in your own life, but it is something that is a gift from God. And when I choose to embrace forgiveness and I choose to acknowledge that I've been forgiven more than I'll ever be forgiven, there is a peace that comes with that. There's a freedom that comes with that. And when I choose to embrace that, when I choose to embrace it, I begin to feel peace. You may still struggle 
regularly when you think about that person. But do you know the difference between somebody who has started the process and someone who doesn't is that you will immediately or very soon after feel peace. You will begin to acknowledge that you're walking through it because you can feel the peace of God with you that is unexplainable, but it is clear it is from God. Why would you hold on? Why would you hold on? The scripture tells us that, um, that, Jesus, that Jesus' burden is what? It's light. That, our, that, our yoke, that, that, what we, that when we accept the grace of God in our life, that, that there is a freedom and a peace that comes with it. And his invitation to us in this story, Jesus desires to shape us in this story by helping us understand first and foremost that we need God's forgiveness and we will be forgiven more than we are ever asked to forgive. But that also when we choose that forgiveness, there is a freedom that comes with it. When we choose that forgiveness, we are also forgiven much and we can live in the peace that God has for us. And Jesus tells us this story to help shape us so that we will be people, not that just receive forgiveness, but live out this forgiveness that he has given us. Will you stand with me all over the room? Everybody's head bowed and everybody's eyes closed. I have a question and it's, it's a little more specific um, than what I asked in first, but I, I just feel it strongly in my heart this morning. It's just you and I talking, but, but there's, there's a couple of you in the room that every time we've talked about forgiveness and, and feeling validated, in holding on to things, that there are things attached to your, to your parents. There's, like, there's someone in here that is specifically your mom. And it's very painful. And I don't wanna embarrass you because there's a, there's a lot of people, but their heads are all bowed. But I, I, I do wanna pray for you specifically it may be a couple of you, but you say, every time you talked about that, moments with my, with my mom consistently popped in my head over and over and over. If that's you, nobody's looking around, it's you and I. Would you raise your hand? I wanna pray specifically for, for you. Would you let me see? Yeah, 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 a couple of you. Yeah, yeah, a couple more, yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, I see about six of you. I'm gonna pray and then I'm gonna ask one more question and then we'll pray and conclude our time together. Father, I pray for, for all of these people, these six people that have raised their hands to say that there's, there's a deep wound from their mother. Father, it can be so much more painful, it can be so much more painful when it is from a parent to live a life of forgiveness. But Father, for everything that they're holding on to, for that weight that's sitting in their life, I pray right now in this moment that your peace would just flood their heart. That it would just, it would just um, flood them 
right now, that, that peace that you so desire for them to have. And Father, for the, the voice that they'll hear later that tells them that they don't need to forgive, I pray that your voice would be louder than that voice. I pray that your voice would be louder than that voice and that they would begin to heal in a way that they've never, uh, they thought that they were gonna carry this their entire life. But Father, it ends today and we thank you for it. While everybody's head bowed and everybody's eyes closed in the room, if you say, I, I've got some stuff, I've, I've got some stuff I need, some people I need to forgive. There's a name that pop, that's popping in your head. Just, just you and I look, just you and I, will you raise your hand, let me pray for you. Yeah, yeah, all over the room, anybody else? Anybody else, yeah. Father, I pray right now for each person that's lifted their hand. It can be so difficult to let go. It can be so difficult to move on. And Father, I pray right now that, that, they, would, that they would hear your heart, Lord, that, that we'll only value what we embrace. That Father, today they would begin to embrace that forgiveness. Maybe it's not completely over. Uh, maybe there are days and weeks where they still need to connect with you and pray with you and, and allow you to do the, the, the final touch of that healing. But Father, they're beginning that process of forgiveness today. And Father, we're, as we sing this song in just a moment that says the cross has the final word, that, that those things that were said to them and spoken over them aren't the final word, those things that were uh, held against them, that wounded them, uh, isn't the final word. But Father, that we'll trust as a community of faith that your cross has the final word in our life. And we'll be quick to give you the praise and quick to give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.